I'm Jacob Kurtzer. And I'm Kirsten Gelsdorf. And this is Beyond Aid, a podcast that takes you beyond the challenging headlines of humanitarian crises and dives deeper into the people, ideas, and issues that may help us find ways to connect to humanitarian action. In today's conversation, I speak with Brandon Harvey, founder and CEO of Good Good Good, about his decision to tackle a new kind of journalism and some of the ethical dilemmas experienced in covering humanitarian stories. Brandon, thank you for joining us on Beyond Aid. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Brandon, maybe first of all, if you could tell us about Good, Good, Good and the Good Newspaper. So Good, Good, Good is an independent media company that is focused on celebrating the good in the world. I think a lot of people feel really overwhelmed by the things that are happening in the world. And our goal is to help people feel more hopeful and do more good, not by pretending that the bad things don't exist, but by looking at them head on and celebrating the people who are working to create solutions to those problems. And then hopefully encouraging our audience to join in and become part of the solutions themselves. Can you tell us how you ended up forming an independent media company Yeah, I would have never guessed that this would be where my life or my career would lead me. But uh, here I am. My background was actually in the world of humanitarian photography. I became a professional photographer really, really young. And I just kept on being really excited anytime I got the chance to work with nonprofits. And eventually, I was traveling all over the world. I was helping them document the work that they were doing. And of course, that work is always you know, this tandem between I'm documenting the problems and the injustices that people are facing, whether it's a natural disaster or years of poor policy or struggles or diseases, whatever it is. But then I'm I'm, I'm documenting the stories of especially local people in these communities who are working to create solutions that support their local community members. And I just came home from all of these trips so energized. And I had this camera full of photos and a journal full of stories. I got to share this with the nonprofit. And it it kind of just felt like it was just continuing to reach their existing audience, you know, and their existing audience would donate money, and then it would allow that work to continue. And I thought that was really, really cool. But I just kept on feeling like, wow, this should be reaching more people because I feel genuinely hopeful, knowing that despite these injustices that I see on the news, I now know what the solutions are. And I feel like those solutions are going under told and underreported. And so what if I could create something that helps make that more accessible? And so that's where Good, Good, Good came from, is, is making those stories of, of people creating solutions more accessible. There is certainly within the humanitarian NGO sector, an ambition to move away from pictures considered exploitative. When you were a photographer yourself, how did you approach that question of which stories should we tell and how should we represent people? That's a fantastic question and something that I thought about a lot early in my career. And I'm really, really just grateful that I had mentors and heroes who were really, really clear with me about how they approach humanitarian photography. My goal was always that if the subject of this photo saw how this image was being used, 
how would this make them feel? Would they feel like it captured their dignity? Would it would it feel like it captured the fullness of their personhood? Or would it just capture the worst thing about their circumstances? These organizations have been at it for years. The communities have been at it for years. I think it's important. And I'm sure some photographers or nonprofits could justify saying, you know, that the photos of a fly landing on a kid's face with tears in his eyes that maybe brings in X many donations. But I think that those donors are probably going to burn out a lot faster because guilt is not an effective way of driving anything. And I think hope and opportunity is an effective long-term solution across the board. Can you then tell us a little bit about the pivot from working for those humanitarian organizations to starting up this media company? How did that humanitarian experience in particular inform the way you approached the opportunity for storytelling more broadly? You know, I it's, it's as if the transition happened slowly and then all at once. So because I was a photographer and, you know, I was doing this work in maybe, you know, 20, probably started in like 2012. And Instagram, which is really the first photo-based social network that took off, launched in maybe, you know, 2009, 2010. And I basically had this cheat code on the platform where because I was a photographer, I was able to just excel a little bit more on the platform and gain an audience a little bit faster. Just like writers were, you know blowing up on Twitter in the early days. And so I had started to build this bigger audience and I started sharing some of these stories of, you know, the amazing work happening around the world. I remember a lot of really positive comments, but I couldn't help but notice that, you know, my photos of, you know, a sunrise in the beautiful mountains of Rwanda always got more photos than the inspiring woman I met in Rwanda that next day. And I started to wonder, why is this the case? You know, why are these stories that I think are just so inspiring, so important, not performing as well? And around the time I, I launched a, a podcast where I just started having conversations with a lot of the world changers I was meeting. I had talked with this guy, Dr. Rick Hansen, and he's a happiness researcher, neuropsychologist. And he talked about this idea that our brains have this internal negativity bias where bad news sticks to our brains like Velcro and good news slides right off our brains like Teflon, or as I say, like a slip and slide. And I realized, oh my gosh, that's why these things don't perform as well. Because, you know, when you're talking about solutions to problems, it's just not sticking with our brain because of just our evolutionary biology. And so that's that began the process of saying, well, what can I do to trick my own brain into paying attention to this good news, these solution-oriented stories? And then how can I trick other people's brains? We end up doing a really weird thing, which is in a year where every other traditional media platform pivots from print to going hard on digital, we decided to make a print newspaper filled with good news. I'm pretty sure I was the only millennial who launched a newspaper that year, maybe that decade. The goal was, what if this is so weird and surprising that it tricks people into paying attention to good news? And what is the fact that you can, you know, tangibly give somebody this manifestation of good news, you know, allows you to spread these positive stories in a different way? Launched it on Kickstarter, was surprisingly successful. And I figured it would maybe be a one-year project and, and we just see how it goes. And we've just been doing it ever since. I think we're heading into our fifth year. So... I want to ask a, a question, you know, having I, myself having worked in this field for some time, I know that there's in some ways a natural bias from practitioners against positive stories. 
Yeah. And there's an argument, I think, that some people would make in a sense that it either, I don't want to say trivializes, but, you know, the circumstances that the people who are experiencing complex crises are, are so traumatic that this is in some ways could take attention away. And, you know, certainly I understand the argument about what sticks and what doesn't, but how do you think about this idea of are you either glamorizing or trivializing complicated stories? And what is maybe the thought process within Good, Good, Good for each story to make sure that you don't, you know, inadvertently, you know, have a negative consequence from from something you report on? I think about this question every day. I think this is really, really huge. And I think it's the reason I founded Good, 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 because it's not like we were the first positive media company out there. You know, there are a dime a dozen. And I felt like there was a gap of this thing that I needed, which was somebody who could truly hold sorrow and joy in the same hand. We basically take people through three steps. The first is when you see bad news in the world, the first thing you should do is you should you should feel that. You should allow those quote-unquote negative emotions to wash over you and you should actually mourn what's happening. Whether it's a school shooting, whether it's a war in Ukraine, whether it's a natural disaster, by actually choosing to feel those emotions and not bury your head in the sand or shy away from it, it allows you to unlock a sense of empathy. It allows you to imagine what it would be like to be there. There's this quote from Brene Brown where she says, you can't selectively numb emotion. And I think a lot of people try to, in the toxic positivity space, for example, just try to stay positive all the time. And by choosing to not acknowledge heartbreak, pain, and injustice, I think you're actually putting a cap or a limit on your ability to feel a sense of joyfulness and hopefulness. And I think that's completely unsustainable. So after that first stage of of truly mourning this this injustice, the next step is, uh, you know, we like to follow the advice of Mr. Rogers, or, or more specifically, Mr. Rogers' mother. When he said, when I was a boy, and I'd see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers, you will always find people who are helping. And we just kind of take Mr. Rogers' mom's advice as gospel in this situation. And so we look you know, closely, no matter what situation we've seen happen in the world, we've always, always, always found people who are working to create a solution to that. And so we look for that and we encourage our audience to look for that. And if they have a hard time, you know, that's what we are here for to bring that to the forefront and bring that to people's attention. And that's maybe where the hopefulness comes from. That's where the positive stuff comes from. But of course, we can only get to the solution by looking at the problem first. And then the third stage is, is that we never want somebody to just feel more hopeful. We think that that's honestly just, we have failed in our job at Good 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 if somebody just feels better at the end. That hopefulness should always be a catalyst for taking action and getting involved in some way. And it's going to be a different level of involvement depending on what the situation is. Obviously, you know, with the war in Ukraine, you know, I think very few people who, you know, have gone through those first two stages, you know, should fly to Ukraine and join in with the Ukrainian military. You know, the level of involvement is help point somebody else to the helpers. Hey, donate five bucks or 10 bucks. Maybe find an opportunity to volunteer, find an opportunity to fundraise. Start small, and then I feel like people naturally get drawn into a little bit of a domino effect where they start doing more and more and more until eventually I get an email from somebody saying, hey, I just booked a one-way flight to Greece and I'm going to work to support refugees for the rest of the year. I think it would be really, really problematic if people were just focusing on 
the good. And we hope that that is tempered by people genuinely acknowledging the injustice in the world and paying attention to that and using their privilege to engage with this in a way that maybe somebody who's up close in the issue can't. And then using that same privilege to get involved and to take action to help alleviate this problem so that it doesn't continue any longer. That's really interesting to me. It's not just about how you feel. It's about what you do with the feeling. Can you take us a step further back and walk us through your process for your team and yourself? How do you find the stories and make the decisions about who to give a platform to? And, you know, what's the back end process from an idea to execution to bring these stories to life? Great question. So we have a few different contexts that we do this in. So one context is in breaking news events. In those situations, you know, we want to kind of do this quickly. We want to respond while there's um, energy around this because we think, you know, if somebody stumbles across our story instead of maybe a feel-good, toxic positivity platform, then maybe we can help actually catalyze change. And so we try to respond really, really quickly. The other kind of context that we do a lot of our stuff in, probably the bulk of our stuff in, is in a slower context. So for example, you know, every month we've got an issue of the newspaper. And in a few months, we have slated to do the disability edition of the newspaper, where we're going to be highlighting, um, you know, problems that people in the disability community face and injustices, and then the people working to create solutions to those. And then, of course, in addition to that, the joy in the in celebrating this like vibrant, diverse, beautiful community. But Disability Pride Month is in July, and we're going to drop this in, I think, November. And so we're intentionally saying this is an issue that matters all year long, and we're not going to just do it when there's a story in the news that people are caring about. We're going to do this long term. And so we do have a little bit of a different approach for both of those. But the core idea is the same. You know, we basically look at what is the thing that's overwhelming me? What is the thing that's overwhelming other people in the community? What are things that that are just breaking people's hearts? And then again, we just trust that Mr. Rogers' mom is right here and that there will always be people who are helping. Honestly, it's not that hard to find good news. <laughs> and we actually have, you know, just this internal Slack channel of like, every single piece of good news or every idea we find. And I bet we get to publish one in... 40 of these of these ideas like if we ever had more funding more staff more resources more time we could share a whole lot more but so then it becomes a prioritization game of like okay well what's what's a really compelling story what makes a really good example here of a solution and you know ultimately we never want the story to stop there we want it to be a reminder for a reader and we really put a lot of trust in our audience i think a lot of folks have the ability to go out and start doing research and finding organizations that they connect with and activists that they're willing to learn from. And so we're just that first stage. But again, for us, it always begins with that curiosity and then that trust that there are people who are working to create solutions. And then we just have to help tell their story effectively and and reach people in a way that's actually going to sink in. Since you've pivoted to this Surely, as part of your work, you pay attention to the overall landscape, both in the media, but also in the humanitarian universe. Have you seen any evolution in the way stories have been told or at large? Have you seen any trends that that you could identify positive or negative? Do you think that this concept of telling different stories has taken hold elsewhere? Or do you think it's still an uphill battle? I do think it's an uphill battle. I've got this 
really weird example that came in my inbox this week. We applied for our web stories to get published in the European news aggregator. I think from what I understand, it's the most popular European news aggregator. And they sent me a very, very kind and thoughtful email. It was clear that they had seen our work. They said, we really like your work. We think it's really powerful and important. It's well written, well sourced. It meets all of our standards. But unfortunately, we're not going to be able to publish you because we've tried publishing good news content in the past, and it just continues to not succeed in our algorithms. And I said, well, I mean, it sucks to hear like this giant organization giving us this like quantitative data that they have found over time. So we found a community that's interested. And then we found some, you know, weird ways to subvert that norm with, you know, good design, compelling storytelling. And then also, you know, when we put stuff in print, that's compelling uh, and tricks brains in a positive way as well. But just hearing that anecdotal story from this aggregator, it was clear to me that this will always be an uphill battle. But I am genuinely really, really encouraged by a growing movement of folks who are paying more attention to this. I think an amazing organization to check out and one that we've learned a lot from and continue to learn from is the Solutions Journalism Network. It's a network of journalists all over the world who are committed to this idea of you know, not just reporting problems, which of course are really, really important. But Solutions Journalism would say, it's also important that as a part of that story, we are not stopping there, that we are saying, well, well, who is creating solutions? And then the network would also say, sometimes these solutions fail. Sometimes these solutions are not actually working. And we're going to report on that too. But we are going to intentionally focus not just on problems, but always include solutions in these narratives. And they've got frameworks for journalists. They've got now journalists who have gone through these trainings at uh, leading news organizations all, the, all over the world. And you know, one day I hope that we are put out of business by somebody with more money to bankroll all of this stuff because they are reporting on more good news content and more solutions content. And so I, I think that's one big trend that I'm seeing is, is this is becoming a lot more normalized. I would imagine a lot of folks even in J school and you know journalism students are getting taught this in their classes now. And so I hope to see that trend continue. And the other thing too that I would say is I think that there is more of an expectation from readers now that they want advice and recommendations on how they can get involved in the stories that they care about. And that's something that we uh, that we especially do in our, our print newspaper is at the bottom of each page, we've got these action steps on how you can get involved in the stories you just read. And it's our way of just extending these stories and providing a, a resource for our audience. Thinking back on, on your career as a photographer and now at Good, 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 is there a story you point to that you're particularly proud of, or I think think this one had a particular impact. You know, one story that I'm really um, I'm really proud of, and I thought that it was really well done, is our managing editor Cameron Baker um, in the midst of kind of the early days of the invasion of Ukraine. She wanted to do something to help, and just as a person, not related to good, 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 just as a human, you know, she loves uh, her dog. And she had heard that there was a lot of Ukrainian Etsy sellers who were selling things. Um, and it was a really, really good way to help support local Ukrainians on the ground by buying like digital goods from them. And Etsy was waiving all the fees for sellers from Ukraine. And so she's like, oh, I'm going to buy this pet portrait from this Ukrainian Etsy seller, this artist. And she just starts striking up a conversation with this woman who 
I think we redacted her her city's name, but uh, her city was getting bombed and was very curiously like uh, continuing to kind of have conversations with Cameron. And Cameron said, would you mind if I if I wrote a story about you? And, and this turned into this great piece where there were a lot of resource guides online. I'm sure you saw it where people were saying, hey, you can do this thing. You can buy it from this Etsy seller. But we got to do this story on specifically, you know, this Etsy seller and what this you know, influx of money meant for her. That's the good news story. But for us, the real good news story was finding out that this Etsy seller was actually using all of this money to support uh, local organizations and mutual aid funds and people in her community as well. So it's this double cycle thing. You know, it just came from a place of, of curiosity and, and, and happenstance. And it was really an honor to get to tell this story and, and hopefully drive a lot more folks to contribute to that. Is there a story that you want to tell, you know, either in your slow news or something that's happening right now that you're like, you know, everyone's focusing on X, but we can talk about Y. The thing that we have always been really, really drawn to is the stories of the work going on behind the scenes to create positive change. I mean, one thing I'm thinking about is, you know, what are the faith communities where there's faith leaders who are intentionally having conversations with perhaps conservative elected representatives about specific policies that they would like to see enacted around things like climate change and gun control and how they're, you know, mobilizing in these very creative behind the scenes ways because they know that they have a unique ability to influence certain representatives. And for us, the compelling aspect of that is that they believe that this quiet activism, this behind the scenes of activism can move the needle in a unique way. And so, of course, it's going to get a lot less attention than the louder activism, which, again, is still really important. But, you know, for us, it's a unique challenge to say, what does it look like to tell the story of the quiet things behind the scenes that I think are really interesting, create a lot of positive change, but definitely don't get uh, the attention they deserve. You've done a excellent job yourself and with your platform to promote hope and solutions, but you are also on a daily basis reporting on situations that are by their very nature, you know, complicated, sad, you know, could, could generate an air of pessimism. So, you know, maybe if we can just ask, you know, and, and wrap with this, as you work in this sector, you know, what, brings you hope? What makes you optimistic for the future? This is such a valid and important question because uh, I think it would be really, really easy to feel cynical or heavy about the state of the world when you're paying this much attention to injustices. And I'm actually (laughs) pretty constantly surprised that I am not overwhelmed with crippling depression based off of a lot of the stuff that we cover or think about or process through, especially when we've got to talk about topics like gun violence, where it feels like we kind of did a a story like this a year ago and a year before that and a week before that, et cetera. And there's certainly some really heavy aspects of this. For me, the thing that keeps me encouraged is just seeing that new people continually step up to create solutions in their own ways. Truly every week I see new stories of people saying, wow, I was heartbroken by this story. And then I realized that I have a unique ability 
to get involved and make a difference here. I have a unique ability to do this thing because I live in this state or because I carry this privilege or because I have this resource or because I have this talent. And it's so energizing to see time and time again, new people step up and say, I have an opportunity to make a difference and I'm going to do it. And then to also see that some of these people who, you know, were sharing these stories with us three years now, they have significantly evolved and grown in their ability to make a difference. Maybe they're running for local office. Maybe they now have other people around them supporting their efforts. Maybe they've created a small little grassroots nonprofit to support things. But for me, that is the most encouraging part. And it's people who are genuinely so talented and so experienced in things and they're they're leaving, you know, maybe careers that are would make them a lot of money. And they're saying, no, I'm going to go pivot into this thing because I want my career to make a difference. And it makes me really excited to think about what does the world look like 20 years from now? Because thousands and thousands and thousands of people have stepped up to to find a way to do good in big and small ways. And it just feels unique and special. And it genuinely leaves me feeling hopeful. Brandon Harvey, thank you very much for joining us on Beyond Aid. Thank you so much for having me. This is an honor and a pleasure. Next time on the podcast, we will go beyond the lens and speak with Wa'ad and Dr. Hamza, who will discuss the challenges of humanitarian reporting when the story is your own. Thank you for listening to Beyond Aid. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. To make sure you don't miss our next episode, subscribe to Beyond Aid on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.